Grant and his officers had just begun the meal when the quiet of the spring morning was unexpectedly broken by the sound of dull concussions from far upstream. Cannon firing, somewhere in the vicinity of Pittsburgh Landing. Grant sat motionless for a moment, an untasted cup of coffee in his hand. A private soldier detailed for headquarters duty came in from outside to confirm what everyone had sensed. Judging by the sound, this was a real fight and not just a skirmish. Grant set his cup down, stood up, and said, Gentlemen, the ball is in motion. Let's be off. Hello and welcome to On Great Fields, Leaders of the American Civil War. This is episode 37, and today we continue our study of Union General and President Ulysses S. Grant. In this episode, we begin a discussion of the battle that would serve as a turning point in Grant's life and America's conception of civil war, the Battle of Shiloh. But first, let's take some time to rewind a few years and discuss Grant's early life. What brought him to this place at this crucial time in American history? Author Winston Groom writes the following in his book, Shiloh, 1862. The most remarkable thing about Grant was that, by all accounts, he was so unremarkable. Grant was 39 years old when the war started, of medium height and slender build, and his manner was taciturn and unpretentious. In fact, there was little in his bearing or his upbringing to suggest that he was destined for greatness, except perhaps for the piercing gaze of his blue eyes, which only later was interpreted as a determination to succeed. He rose from a failed soldier, unsuccessful farmer, hard-scrabble wood peddler, lackluster store clerk, and notorious drunkard, to the most celebrated military hero of the age and President of the United States, Grant's father, Jesse, was a tannery worker in Point Pleasant, Ohio, when Grant was born on April 27th of 1822. Point Pleasant is a small town near Cincinnati in southern Ohio on the Ohio River just across from Kentucky. Now, a tannery is a place where animal skins, usually cows, are processed and treated to produce leather. Jesse was very industrious, and he worked his way up to start his own tannery and slaughterhouse, and eventually leather goods stores and haberdasheries. Grant grew up around tanneries and was revolted by them, especially the smell. He loved animals, especially horses, and he wanted nothing to do with the business of slaughtering animals. Growing up on the Ohio River, Grant would come to understand river comings and goings and appreciate them, and uh, of river commerce and the value of transportation by water. As a baby, Grant went unnamed for a month before the family finally named him Hiram uh, after the man in the Old Testament who built Solomon's temple. His middle name was Ulysses after the Greek mythological hero who conquered Troy. So as a result, his initials were H-U-G, which would cause him embarrassment as a teenager. As Grant grew up, he was interested only in horses, and he appeared to be what you would call now a horse whisperer. His mother, Hannah, said, Horses seem to understand Ulysses. 
Grant was clumsy in his own gait, but incredibly graceful on horseback. His equestrianship led people to remark that he, that he was at one with a horse. He was a daredevil, and by the age five, he would run, he would ride at top speed on a horse while standing one legged on its back. Right away, he was using his love of horses to make money. At age six, he was hauling brush using his father's horses, and at age eight, he was hauling giant logs using a team of horses. As a teenager, he uh, would break horses and train horses for sale. He also had a business of taking people to nearby towns by carriage at distances of up to 40, even 250 miles away. Now, for his entire life, Grant was utterly without guile in his personal dealings and business dealings. This would work for him much of the time because people knew they could trust that he meant what he said. However, this would work against him in business. In fact, Grant was famously bad at bargaining and business in general. When he was eight, his father Jesse had, sent, had offered a local farmer $20 for a colt, but the farmer wanted 25 Jesse sent his son to haggle with the farmer to bargain for this horse. Jesse told him to offer twenty, and he he wouldn't if he wouldn't take that, then he should follow up with twenty two fifty, and if necessary, go as high high as twenty five dollars if the farmer uh, would not take less. The following is from uh, biographer Ron Chernow in his book Grant. Utterly incapable of guile. Ulysses bungled the bargaining. When I got to Mr. Ralston's house, I said to him, Papa says I may, I may offer you $20 for the colt, but if you don't take that, I am to offer 22 and a half, and if you won't take that, to give you 25 The story circulated wide, widely to the merriment of the village youth. Grant was la- uh, later commented, It cost me more heartburning than almost any transaction in life. He was so traumatized by the mockery that it remained evergreen in his memory. The trusting naivete displayed in the farmer episode would haunt the adult Grant no less than the boy. Unlike Grant, his father Jesse was an accomplished businessman, and the Grant family was upwardly mobile as a result. Grant was sent to boarding schools for his education on the banks of the Ohio River, both on the Kentucky and the Ohio sides. He was an excellent math student, but otherwise young Grant was indifferent to school. He also had no interest in the family business. So by the time he was 17, Grant's father had grown short of funds and decided he should go to West Point, where he could continue his education for free. He had no interest in West Point, or military in general, but his father was always a domineering presence in his life, so he felt he had no choice but to acquiesce. Getting the congressional appointment took some time, uh, effort, and luck, but by the summer of 1839, Grant was on his way to West Point. Now, by the standards of of rural Ohio, Grant was considered a country bumpkin by his contemporaries. So his experience at the U.S. Military Academy would represent a transformational time for Grant's early life. When he arrived at West Point, Grant was five foot two and 117 pounds. Ever embarrassed by his initials, he tried to register with the adjutant as U.H. Grant, 
reversing his first and middle names. However, he was immediately informed that he had been nominated for the Academy as Ulysses S. Grant. This was indeed a clerical error, but despite his protests, he was given a choice to either adopt the new name or go back home to Ohio. So this would be his new name. As soon as his fellow cadets, including William T. Sherman and James Longstreet, spotted his name, U.S. Grant, on the bulletin board, they promptly branded, him, branded this new cadet Uncle Sam Grant, or Sam Grant for short. He would uh, become known as Sam Grant among the cadets and would keep that moniker for the rest of his life. Just as he had been at boarding school, Grant was an indifferent student. However, the classes came relatively easy for him, and he didn't need to study intensely, unlike his fellow cadet and zealous Christian Thomas J. Jackson. He would be acquainted with a number of young men who would furnish the cream of the officer corps in the Civil War. These included the aforementioned Sherman and Longstreet and Jackson, as well as George B. McClellan, Don Carlos Buell, John Pope, George Thomas, William Rosecrans, and George Pickett. In our last episode, we discussed Grant's victory at Fort Donelson and his capture of about 13,000 Confederate prisoners on February the 16th of 1862. This was the greatest victory yet for the Union cause, and the Northern public could not have been happier. Grant was soon promoted to Major General, which made him the highest-ranking general in the West besides Henry Halleck. Grant sent William Bull Nelson up the Cumberland to Nashville to capture the city, which had just been evacuated by the rebels after Fort Donelson. Nelson's division had been lent to uh, by Union General Don Cor- Carlos Buell to Grant for reinforcement of Fort Donelson, and uh, Buell did not appreciate it when Grant, Grant sent Nelson to take Nashville, even though this represented a huge victory for the Union to capture a major state capital. Now, Buell suffered from the same ambitious anxieties as Halleck, so this episode allowed him to engage in some malign gossip with Halleck in retaliation for Grant's supposed misuse of his division to capture Nashville. Grant also traveled to Nashville himself for a brief reconnaissance before returning to Fort Henry on the Tennessee. Strangely, in the aftermath of Donelson, Grant would learn a painful lesson about success. This lesson came in the form of his ambitious superior, General General Halleck, as well as General Buell, both of whom had begun to see Grant as a rival and a threat. Halleck began a bizarre campaign of slander and character assassination, as we discussed in the last episode, in the form of rumor-filled telegrams between himself, McClellan, and Buell, which accused Grant of having shirked his duty after taking Fort Donelson and even insinuated that Grant had engaged in drunkenness. These unfounded accusations would result in Grant being removed from command and placed under a a form of house arrest. Eventually, however, President Abraham Lincoln would quietly intervene in Grant's favor. Grant was the Union's most successful commander, and Lincoln took great interest in uh, when he learned that Grant had been sidelined. Lincoln had heard about the correspondence between the three generals 
and the old country lawyer in Lincoln could easily discern that Halleck's accusations against Grant were based on hearsay and rumor. In short, uh, Grant or Lincoln told him to either put up or shut up. On March 10th, Lincoln had his adjutant general of the army, Lorenzo Thomas, write a strongly worded letter to Halleck instructing him either to file formal, char- formal charges against Grant or drop the whole subject. So uh, Halleck had no choice but to drop it and to reinstate Grant to Army Command on March the 13th. However, by this point, he was only pleased to do so, not just because he had been ordered to, but also because his ambitions to control the Union Army in the Western Theater had been realized. He was promoted to command of the newly created U.S. Army Department of the Mississippi. Now, this episode brings to mind one of Grant's most prominent character flaws, which is naivete. He, he gave most people the benefit of the doubt, thinking the people around him were motivated by the purest of intentions. This would bedevil him later in life, especially as president. But for now, this meant he was blind to Halleck's treachery, treachery against him and steadfastly believed Halleck had his best intentions at heart. Only after the war did Grant learn the true extent of Halleck's duplicity, and for this, Grant would never forgive him. Meanwhile, as Halleck's shenanigans were unfolding, Grant's old uh, West Point instructor, C.F. Smith, had been placed in command of his army. Grant revered Smith, having been taught how to be a soldier by Smith at West Point. So Grant had no animus toward him for uh, replacing him. On the contrary, he had great affection for Smith. So while Grant was on the sidelines, Smith had relocated the main army headquarters to Savannah, Tennessee, which is on the east side of the Tennessee River, just seven miles downstream or north of a place called Pittsburgh Landing. At Pittsburgh Landing, the army was being assembled and was making preparations to join with Don Carlos Buell's army coming down from Nashville. Together, those two armies would make up the bulk of the Union force, which would then go further south, about 25 miles, and attack the main Confederate army at the crucial rail junction of Corinth, Mississippi. Corinth was critical to the south because it was the only line connecting the Mississippi to the Atlantic Ocean. Now back to the Confederate army. The loss of Fort Donaldson was an unmitigated disaster. Even as Grant's men were assembling around Fort Donaldson, Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston knew his positions in Kentucky were in peril. Now, with Fort Henry, Fort Henry and Donaldson in Union hands, the Confederate stronghold on the Mississippi River at Columbus, Kentucky, was outflanked and untenable. This was also true for Bowling Green, Kentucky. So Johnson would be forced to surrender Kentucky entirely to the Federals, as, much, as well as much of Middle Tennessee, and to make his stand in the northern border of Mississippi. This made Albert Sidney Johnston uh, public enemy number one in the South. He would come under extreme pressure from the press and from Confederate President Davis to shore up the Confederate position in the West and win back lost territory. He accepted this likely impossible challenge and would now embark on an all-or-nothing campaign to destroy Grant's army in the field or die trying. He was aware that Buell's army was coming down from Nashville, so his window of opportunity was tight. But luckily for Sidney Johnston, 
Buell was as slow and risk-averse as Halleck. Buell's trek from Nashville to Savannah was painfully slow, which gave Johnston enough time to pull off his madly ambitious attack before the addition of Buell's forces to Grant's would render the attack difficult or impossible. Historian Bruce Canton wrote the following. As April began, Johnston had between forty and 45,000 men at Corinth, with able lieutenants to lead them, Beauregard, Bragg, Polk, and Hardee. Twenty-five miles away was Grant with a slightly smaller army coming down and coming down from Nashville with a, an army about the size of Grant's was Buell. Johnston's only chance was to beat Grant before Buell arrived, and when April began, he undertook to do this. His army had been hastily put together. Most of the soldiers had never been under fire before and were imperfectly trained. Their staff organization was poor, when, and so when the advance began, the different divisions got into one another's way, straggled all over the landscape, and made such bad progress that Beauregard, in despair, wanted to cancel the whole operation. On the logical ground that such a stumbling, disorganized offensive could not possibly succeed. But Johnston's mind was made up. He uttered grimly, I would fight them if they were a million, and he drove his men toward Pittsburgh Landing. On the Union side, the peach trees near Shiloh Meeting House were in pink blossom. The clear streams ran down the ravines to the flooded river. And between Snake Creek and Lick Creek, the high ground was waiting to absorb the blood that would flow so soon and so copiously. And farm boys who were proud of their new blue uniforms and never had been taught which end of the rifled musket is which were lolling innocently in their camps, enjoying the spring sunshine and writing letters home about the power and the glory of male youth in time of war. The Confederates, having been given the gift of time by Halleck and Buell, were not about to sit and wait for their destruction at Corinth. They were about to launch a sudden, shattering offensive that would teach the world the true cost of civil war in America. And Sidney Johnson's attack was simple and effective. His plan was simple and effective. His plan, as communicated to his generals, was a surprise attack along the whole Union position from south to north, with the main attack focused on the Union left flank. The idea was to roll Grant's army up on, the, on their left and get between them and their supply boats at Pittsburgh Landing. This would cause disorder and force the Federals back into the bogs of Owl Creek to their eventual destruction or capture. At least this was Sidney Johnston's plan. However, the person responsible for committing the plan to paper was none other than the famous PGT Beauregard. Beauregard had fallen far from his lofty hero status at Fort Sumter and First Manassas. Now he had been sent into exile in the West due to his cantankerous big mouth and his lack of tact when dealing with his president in, in Richmond. He was now second in command to Sidney Johnston, and his job was to organize this newly created army and draw up the attack plan for Pittsburgh Landing. However, Beauregard was not well still recovering from surgery he had received in Richmond for a serious throat ailment, 
So he was left, he left the planning entirely to his chief of staff, Colonel Jordan. Jordan had been uh, Sherman's roommate at West Point and had previously organized the Rose Greenhouse uh, spy ring in Washington, D.C. Jordan's plan for attack on Pittsburgh Landing did not resemble Sidney Johnston's plan in the least. Johnston had envisioned that each corps commander would have his own sector of the battlefield of a mile or uh, less to control. The corps positioned on the far right or Union left would be the largest force and would be responsible for rolling up the Union left flank. Instead of this traditional approach, however, Jordan lined up the various corps according to uh, across the entire front in layers like a birthday cake. The Confederate Army was arrayed in three successive, successive lines of battle, about two miles long, one corps after another, and they were about 800 yards apart facing north. Hardy's corps was first, and then Bragg, then Polk, and Breckinridge was left in reserve in the rear. This unorthodox plan ensured that once fighting started, the Confederate Army would be jumbled and disorganized like a mass with union cohesion, uh, unit cohesion lost. This lack of cohesion would indeed plague them throughout the battle. Now back to the Union Army at Pittsburgh Landing. Grant was back in command of his army, which was encamped uh, wherever units could find suitable clearings. No plans had been made for defense of the position. Halleck's shenanigans against Grant and his orders to avoid a general engagement at all cost had a chilling effect on this newly reinstated general, and he had no interest in provoking the Confederates to attack him there. The mindset of this Green Army was to advance on Corinth to the south, and they had no inkling that the Confederates would not simply wait there for the Union Army to attack them. As an important side note, by the time Grant was reinstated, C.F. Smith would be taken out of action due to a freak accident to his leg. He had scraped his leg while jumping out of a small boat, and a serious infection had set in. He was convalescing at his Savannah headquarters by the time of the handover to Grant, and he was not improving. Importantly, during the handover, Smith complained to Grant that due to Halleck's delays and overcaution, the army was, quote, chafing like hounds in the leash to move at the enemy, end quote. This reflected both Smith's and Grant's frustration at Halleck's lack of aggression and all the missed opportunities to strike at the rebels just to their south. Neither of them gave thought to the prospect that Sidney Johnston and Beauregard might be planning to strike a blow of their own. As we discussed in previous episodes, this type of thinking was consistent with Grant's tendency to focus on his plans to the exclusion of his enemy's plans. This works if you've gained the initiative, but in this case, Grant had denied, or sorry, um, Halleck had denied Grant the initiative, and he would soon be at the mercy of the Confederates. So Grant had only the vaguest notion of fortifying his positions, and no effort was made for distant patrolling or reconnaissance. Perhaps out of fear of provoking Halleck by making aggressive movements, Grant seems to have been simply marking time at Pittsburgh Landing, waiting for Buell to arrive from Nashville. 
Many of the regiments in the Union Army were raw recruits from the western states, now just handling their muskets for the first time. So weapons and maneuver training were priorities and not fortifying his position. The Union dispositions at Pittsburgh Landing were as follows. The landing was at a place where Snake Creek empties into the Tennessee River. This was the northernmost position of the Army. Surrounding the Army were Snake and Owl Creeks on the western side, and the Tennessee River and Lick Creek on the eastern side. The topography inside these watercourses was in a conical shape like that of a cornucopia. The cornucopia's narrow tip was the northernmost point of Pittsburgh Landing, and its wide open mouth was about three and a half miles to the south near the Hamburg Purdy Road, close to Shiloh Church. Had this taken, had they taken time to fortify the opening of the cornucopia, Grant's position would have been all but impregnable. But defense was the last thing on Grant's mind at this point. Meanwhile, Sidney Johnston's army was concentrated a mere two miles south, right in front of Sherman and Prentiss's positions, and was preparing to attack. On the night of April 5, Johnston's army was ready in position and prepared to attack the next morning. Beauregard had again, however, gotten cold feet and was sure Grant would have been forewarned of the impending attack. He was trying to convince Sidney Johnston to call it off. However, Sherman, to the south of Grant, and Grant himself at his headquarters, had no idea. Grant reported to Halleck that very night, quote, I've scarcely the faintest idea of an attack being made on us, end quote. That night, the Confederate soldiers kept on their arms and built no fires, even though it was a chilly night. At 4 a.m., they were awakened and given some breakfast and cold bacon and biscuits. The companies formed up into hundreds of small groups, and their captains read aloud a short address from their commanding general, Sidney Johnston. I have put you in motion to offer battle to the invaders of your country. You can but march to victory over the mercenaries sent to subjugate you and despoil you of your liberty, your property, and your honor. The eyes and hopes of eight millions of people rest upon you. You are expected to show yourselves worthy of your lineage, worthy of the women of the South, and with the trust that God is with us, your generals will lead you confidently to combat, assured of success. The rebels lined up in their strange birthday cake formations that Jordan had designed and began their advance northward towards the Union position. Once more, Beauregard expressed uncertainty about the outcome and asked Sidney Johnston to call off the battle. He believed the element of surprise had been lost due to delays and due to the many small skirmishes that were now taking place in the woods around the Union position. At about this time, from a distance, the rattle of musketry and loud boom of cannon could be heard. At this, General Johnston stopped any discussion. Quote, Note the hour, please, he said. The battle is open, gentlemen. Mounting his huge thoroughbred fire-eater, he declared, Tonight we will water our horses in the Tennessee River. End quote. 
We'll conclude today's episode here and pick back up in episode 38 as the Shiloh battle kicks off in earnest. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, please do take a moment to rate, review, and share the podcast with your friends. Also, as always, please send any comments and questions to leadersof1865 at gmail.com. Meanwhile, join me next time for episode 38, when we will continue our study of General Ulysses S. Grant. Mm -hmm.